Welcome to the Wadsworth Public Library Podcast. This episode is the first in a six-part series covering the history, stories, landmarks, and traditions of Wadsworth, Ohio. This live recorded presentation is of local historian Roger Havens as he walks us through the book Wadsworth Heritage by Eleanor Shapiro. All right, so again, we're going to start out with this book. It is called Wadsworth Heritage. Uh, there is a book called The Center of, to the City that was written in 1939 by a high school group, and their teacher was Mrs. Shapiro, who later on, she kind of cleaned up the high schoolers' mistakes that they did, and then she rewrote a more comprehensive. So I do have a copy of The um, Center to the City, that was written back in 1939 for the, what, the 125th anniversary of Wadsworth. So it seems like every anniversary we're coming up with a book here lately. 1964, 1939, and then the original one called Wadsworth Memorial that was written in 1875. It was written for the um, 50th anniversary of Wadsworth, which would have put it at, uh, 1864, however, we had a civil war going on, so they didn't want to party during the civil war. So they waited till the following, um, or they waited 10 more years. And then what they did is they invited, uh, they, they called it a pioneer reunion held in Wadsworth and focused everything on Wadsworth. But because everybody was related, I mean, everybody had relatives, whether it was in Sharon Center or Silverville, Medina, I mean, it was kind of a closed community that was branching out slowly. So they had the county reunion here and just kind of used Wadsworth as the epicenter, if that uh, makes any sense. So this was rewritten then as a project for the renovation of OJ Work Auditorium. So there's an extra section in the back. This was done in 1998. These were then sold as a fundraiser for the OJ work renovation. So again, they added that uh, section in the back and sold these, I believe, for $30. And somebody just discovered that there were several cases of them left in their house, and so they donated to the Historical Society. So all the money, the $20 that you're given, goes to the Historical Society, and we can get rid of some of these. But they're in pristine condition, at least these are. Okay, so this starts out here at the beginning, and I was starting there on page one. It talks about uh, Indian Holmes. He was really the first white person to settle in Wadsworth, although he was a drifter, and therefore he hasn't been really recognized as the first person in Wadsworth. But his name was John Holmes, and they nicknamed him Indian Holmes because he took on an Indian bride. And so when they nicknamed him Indian Holmes, it probably wasn't a complimentary name. They were jazzing him for the fact that he uh, married a Native American. And what I picked up from him is he was originally from kind of the Montreal area of Canada, and he was a drifter. He was a trapper, uh, lived off the land type person. And there was one article that I read that doesn't reflect in this book, is that he was in charge of moving some merchandise from point A to point B 
up kind of around the Great Lakes. And something happened along the way that whether he got robbed and th those goods were stolen or whether he pilfered them, whatever the case may be, he drifted out of there and he happened to drift towards Wadsworth and he set up down here at Holmesbrook uh, here on the west end of town. And at that point, he traded with the Indians and his trade was, and fortunately for him, I guess, so he built a log cabin right there at the entrance of Holm Holmesbrook Park on Greenwich Road, back then, of course, just being a, a trail. And then he noticed some uh, veins of coal there along the, the valley walls. Not enough coal to really mine, but enough for him to chip out and have coal. And he set up a little forge and he made things out of metal that he traded with the Indians uh, for pelts and things like that. I mean, he did his own trappings, but he also dealt with the Native Americans in the area and traded with them. And he also helped our two pioneering families that came to Wadsworth and he helped roll up their cabin. Rolling it up means they cut the logs, had them uh, rolling them up. That's how they stack them into the house frame or the house siding. Then after too many pioneers came into his territory, he just drifted to the west and nobody knows whatever happened to him. So he was a loner at heart. He, again, he was a trader with the Indian. So I put up an image. Obviously, this is not him, but could look like what he may have looked like. And then an interesting thing that uh, crops up is as the pioneers came in, there was a tree down there in Holmesbrook close to the Greenwich Road, and it had inscriptions in it. And the inscription, and again, I kind of made this thing up. It said Philip, Philip Ward, and then the initials TD, RC, if I can, no, I can't do that. Uh, oh, WV, like West Virginia. And the um, date on it was uh, 1797. And this was really strange because the area of Wadsworth wasn't surveyed until 1806. So nobody could figure out what the 1797 was, let alone who these people were, uh, Philip Ward and TD and RC and WV. So that was a mystery for the longest time. The tree eventually got cut down and so history was lost. It was discovered uh, many, many years later that somebody finally put it all together and that Philip Ward was in fact a surveyor. But the 1797 doesn't fit because it wasn't until the early 1800s where this was surveyed. So then they put it all together that one of these initials, I don't know whether it was Philip Ward or who it was, they were, that was the year they were born. <laughs> so it was one of those members that ended up being the 1797. That was the why he put the year he was born, I don't know. But the others did match up with some uh, surveyors that came through in the early 1800s. And according to that date, I mean, that uh, surveyor, he was only like 12 years old. So I don't know, he was just a gopher for the whole thing of hauling the chains around that they measured the, the property. So anyway, um, so this first page, it talks about Indian homes 
the squaw that he uh, married. He helped roll up the cabins. Uh, halfway down that page, it uh, talks about 1808 was the first trace to be cut. So the first trace to be cut through Wadsworth was 1808, which was a path that uh, started east of town, and they called this the East-West Road before they called it Greenwich Road. And it went all the way to Harrisville, which was Lodi. And so Lodi was actually older than Wadsworth. Wadsworth be the second oldest, but because they cut and went all the way through and landed there, that's kind of where the first settlement was before Wadsworth. And then Wadsworth was 1814, and our settlers stopped out here with a flashing light out on Broad Street in uh, what they call the um, Western Star area or the border with Norton. So you probably know where that flashing red light or stop sign is out here on Broad Street all the way past the blue sky. So I have named uh, Holmesbrook as really the cradle of uh, civilization for Wadsworth because that's really where the first white person started. Now Native Americans used this area. They really didn't settle here. They mostly settled out at Chippewa Lake and they used this area as their hunting grounds. You know, I am not aware of any known uh, tribe or any artifacts that really have been large in Wadsworth. Ironically, when I was a principal there at Franklin School, the one day we were going to put in a school garden, and I was back rototilling behind the school and coughed up a arrowhead, which is neat because we would have our pioneer days back there, and I could show the kids, you know, here's a arrowhead, unless the people who owned the land and dropped it out of their pocket, but more than likely it was something left over from a Na Native American here that uh, would have roamed Wadsworth. So anyway, you have this Broad Street out here that eventually became Broad Street. Uh, it was called the Greenwich Road at the time. The original one, they called it the East-West. And then uh, it's also known as Route 97. I mean, it's amazing how some of our roads have like 12 different names and uh, can get some of the non-locals really confused, <clears throat> as well as people that's been around for a while. And their biggest challenge, of course, when that first cluster of people went across to cut that trail was the River Styx Valley out here, just beyond 57. It was a total nightmare for them because it was a swamp. I mean, it's still kind of swampy, but you know, ditches have been dug and drain pipes have been put in and that sort of thing. But before that time, it was just an actual swamp. And uh, so their horses would get stuck in the mud, their, their wagons would get stuck in the mud. They're trying to trim these things down. They're trying to put in a road which all they were doing was dropping branches and making these uh, corduroy, they called them corduroy type roads and just stacking them side by side by side and keeping people from sinking in. That's kind of why they named it River Styx because it was the river from hell and that's what in the Bible uh, it references. Okay, so um, next Page, page two, talks about, it kind of goes back even before time, is that we are located in the western part of the Western Reserve of Connecticut. So technically, you're Connecticans, or whatever you call them, Connectites. Um, you know, the original colonies out on the east coast, 
you know, when they started, nobody knew the vastness of the United States. So basically, they had their borders out there, their north border, their south border, their east border, because it was the ocean, their west border. They just said it'll go until it runs out, not knowing how big the United States was. So a lot of the colonies earlier on said, we're only going to go out so far. That's the end. We're, we're not going to claim territory out to California. And back then, they didn't even know how far it went out. But they said, you know, enough land is enough land. But Connecticut, they didn't give their part up right away. They wanted to reserve it for people of Connecticut. So that's why they called it the Connecticut Western Reserve, is they reserved this land, whereas other colonies gave up their land in this area. And they wanted to, well, uh, yeah, basically they just wanted to um, allow their people to select land out here to live on because we're going back into the late, or the mid-1700s and beyond. So already they're being bombed out through a revolutionary war. They then got bombed out again in the War of 1812. And they felt so sorry for their people who lost everything. They lost their houses, lost their barns, lost their cattle, that they gave them pieces of land out here in uh, Ohio as, uh, yeah, reparations, I guess you'd call it, reparations for their losses. Although ironically, if you lost every, everything, how do you afford to even move? You have, but at least you don't have to pack your bags so much. You don't have much left over. But uh, anyway, that's the way it started. But then a little bit along the way, the king over in England messed up a little bit because he appropriated or allowed another settlement to take place, and that was William Penn's settlement. <laughs> so right in the middle of Connecticut and their lengthy move from the uh, Atlantic Ocean out to a little bit beyond Wadsworth, there was a gap that uh, you had the Germans settling in because they were Quakers and they were told that um, Pennsylvania, that's the name of the state, or um, they're not a state, they're a commonwealth. And so <laughs> you had the Germans that were basically squatting on Connecticut's land only because they were told it was part of Pennsylvania's commonwealth. So they had wars out there. The uh, English were fighting the German slash Quakers over that land. <clears throat> so it got very, very ugly out there because both of them claimed the land. Eventually that got sorted out, but uh, it would take a while for the memories to sort themselves out. So the first settlers that came to Wadsworth in 1814 were two New England uh, families, and they were the Dean, the Dean family and the Durham family, D-U-R-H-A-M. The Deans and the Durhams, and they, they settled right there where the flashing stop sign is uh, on the south side of the road where the creek goes through. So they were like the first settlement boom right there uh, in Medina County or Wadsworth Township, but at that time that didn't even exist. It was all one thing. So anyway, uh, getting past all that is now you have the English that are settling there, and I had Germans coming in, and probably some of you, if you're from around here, you have German blood in you. I know my uh, mom's side of the family, they settled in Wayne County, and 
they were originally from Germany and blah, blah, blah. And most of Wayne County was German and Swiss. Here in Wadsworth, you had the Germans coming in and they would get there to where the deans and the Durhams and they didn't want anything to do with the English. So they turned south. So really everything from Broad Street and south was settled by the Germans. And then the English would settle everything kind of straight away and to the north and they segregated each other. Um, over the years, eventually that all, you know, after generations and generations, the Germans and the English married into each other. Now, another part of Wadsworth where the Germans hit pretty good was some of them traveled all the way through the center and started going up the hill where the Mennonites are today. And so the Germans settled that part of town too. Then eventually a lot of the English left here and moved farther west. Evidently some of these pioneers, that's all they wanted to do in their lifetime was to settle an area. So of course they came in. This was uh, an ancient forest, you know, trees this big around, not unusual, just thick with it. First thing they did was get out the axes and big saws and sawed everything down to create their farmland, which had to be quite the task, of course. Um, I mean, just think of the thickest woods you've been in lately and thinking of clear-cutting it to be able to drop a plow in it to eventually be your farm. Lots of work, lots of burning of the um, logs too. So Wadsworth was always coated with a layer of smoke from them trying to get rid of all the wood. And of course the wood ashes then helped to fertilize the soil. All right, um, going back to page two, that talks about those uh, Penamite Wars. So the war out in, the, um, out in Pennsylvania, the Wyoming Valley. So if you're interested in that on page two and into page three, uh, talks about that. Then we talk about General Elijah Wadsworth, uh, of which Wadsworth was named after. He was a general in the Revolutionary War and also the War of 1812. He spent a lot of his own money furnishing his soldiers with equipment that they needed and that sort of thing because there really wasn't much money in the new, well, almost new United States of America because they were fighting that war to become that. In the meantime, he invested with others to buy this section of land here in the Connecticut Western Reserve. So they bought it on speculation, then they sold it to the land as the pioneers were coming through. So he moved to Canfield, Ohio, which is 60 miles west of here, just on Greenwich Road, basically, 60 miles out there. So they would come through, buy these plots of land, and then come out here and start settling. And with his other investors, uh, he owned over uh, or close to half, I think, of the Wadsworth Township. So they eventually just named it after him, although for all practical purposes, he never came out here. He never had to. He just sat in Canfield and downtown Canfield and had his land office and people would buy the properties. He would sign the deeds and send them on their way. Okay, uh, so the first settlers, it talks about on page five. Again, I mentioned that it was, um, oh, I guess I'm not keeping up with my little PowerPoint here. Uh, so the Western Reserve, put this on um, slideshow, get the 
So I mentioned this before about how the uh, Western Reserve of Connecticut came this way. So the Deans and the Durhams, um, they came out from Connecticut. Actually, the one family was technically from Vermont, but they were related through their wives. And that's what I found, um, especially working down at the uh, Woodlawn Cemetery and in the old grounds, which is the grounds that faces College Street, that it's amazing that it's like everybody in there are related to each other. So I think a family or two came out here. I guess they enjoyed it or just said, you know, how peaceful it is out here. The Indians aren't a problem anymore. And they encouraged family members to come out. And before long, more and more of these families came out and hooked up with their other families. And then before long, they start intermarrying, <laughs> you know, several cousins away from each other. And so I always say that it really duplicates what goes on in the Amish communities of today. You know, if, you're, if your only means of transportation for the most part are horse and buggy, you're not going to get far from the nest, which means you're going to marry into families that's probably already in your family tree, and you're just uh, making your tree sometimes a little bit worse because of the... But I, I'm sure all these small villages went through the same thing in their day. It's trying to, you know, bring ladies or gentlemen in from other towns so you're not marrying into all your families. So all these original families were hooked to each other one way. So you really had to be careful talking about family members at a reunion because, you know, obviously it went true and far. If they had a family reunion in Wadsworth, it was probably 90% of the people who lived in Wadsworth attended so again, on pages uh, five, six, seven. Oh, and the sad part that I found is the um, Oliver Durham, one of the first families, he's buried down here in the old grounds. And his tombstone wasn't in too bad a shape where you were able to get it straightened up so that you can uh, see it and read it. And there was none of uh, Daniel Dean and we looked, and when we looked in the records, it says, yes, he's buried there. And, but there's a lot of missing tombstones in the old grounds. So several things could have happened. Number one, they got vandalized so bad that they rendered them to a pit somewhere. And they just couldn't repair them or didn't want to bother to repair them. Another one is... Uh, if they were the first, if they were a young person, the first member of their family that died, you know, they, they were buried there, a headstone was put there, but then later on when other family members started dying, then somebody bought a family plot in the cemetery, then they had the outlier removed and moved to the other location. So we've come across a number of those. And some of them, <laughs> uh, especially the one I, I was digging at the base of another one to straighten it out and found a tombstone of another person. And I kind of chuckled because I figured out right away what the problem was. His first name they had down as He-Man, H-E-M-A-N. And I kind of laughed thinking, you know what, they left the R out of it, it's Herman. And so, you know, you can't, uh, once it's uh, carved in stone, it's hard to remove it. Well, here somebody did a search on the guy, and he really is buried down in River Sticks, in the River Sticks Cemetery. 
and his name was He-Man, H-E-M-A-N. So here again, he died in Wadsworth. They put him here. Then other family members died, and they must have been living down in Riversticks, so they had him lifted out of there and hauled down there. That guy probably had more mileage in death than he had in life <laughs> with no stress. But, uh, but it was interesting. So they just used his old headstone as a filler when they buried somebody else and just slipped it down in here. I thought I found a gold mine and here it's a dead person who was laying down there at River Sticks. So those are things that we were finding and it, it uh, uh, when you're doing the history of Wadsworth, it just kind of blows our mind. So, um, so we're missing Daniel Dean's tombstone. It showed that he and a couple of sons of his and his wife are all buried there. There's no tombstone, but I could find him on an old, old map. So again, don't know what happened along the way that his tombstone went missing. But what I do know is... He now has a tombstone because we made arrangements uh, to have a tombstone put in there to mark where he's buried. Uh, he's buried right next to him is Oliver Durham, so his family member that they came out together. To the left was his son's wife, and she was laying on her back for the longest time, so we were able to pour a new base and put that up. And does anybody recognize that lady there? That's Ramona. She is a descendant of uh, Daniel Dean. This is Benjamin Dean. We don't have a picture of Daniel because he was, uh, he died before uh, photography came in. And so this was his son who actually cut down the first tree in Wadsworth uh, as a pioneer. But now we do have um, Daniel Dean marked and I didn't put any other family members, but he was a, a veteran of the War of 1812. So that was the other impetus that made me recognize a veteran that we couldn't recognize because of a missing tombstone. Okay, and speaking of that uh, Woodlawn Cemetery, so the Brown family uh, was the first pioneer family to come in and settle here at this, what they called the center, which ironically, it's right here where the library is today. And so that was Frederick Brown on the far left. And um, so he built a log cabin here, started raising his family, uh, owned a lot of the property here. In fact, the uh, uh, St. Mark's Church was built on his property. He donated the land for St. Mark's Church. And um, his son, the Reverend Edward Brown, uh, he's the one that wrote that um, Wadsworth Memorial, the 1875 book. He took copious notes during that reunion, and so he's the author of that. And uh, Frederick's brother is Owen Brown, and Owen never lived in Wadsworth, but he owned property here. So when his brother Frederick, um, he and his wife had a child, a baby that didn't uh, survive, that was the first death of anybody here close to the center of the city. There was no place to bury her. It was 1817. Of course, the Brown family came here in 1816. But Owen owned the property, kind of past the uh, St. Mark's Church. So he donated an acre of land 
and designated, they said they could use as a cemetery to bury his niece. His, uh, and Owen Brown uh, lived up in Hudson with his family and his son was John Brown, the abolitionist. So that's kind of our connection to national history. And I suspect that John came to visit his uncle on occasion and cousin. So that's how the Brown family, and ironically, Frederick, when he came out here, and he was an educated person himself, but you know, there were no schools really at that time. And he worried about you know, having kids and raising them so that they were educated. So after he settled here in 1816, I think it was probably in 1817 then, he jumped in his wagon, went all the way back to Connecticut and loaded up his wagon with books and hauled them back here and kind of started the first library. And ironically, it's in the same spot as where our library is today. So that's a little deja vu. Okay, so that was 1817-ish. Uh, oh. Okay, Frederick Brown, he and his wife Chloe were the ones who built the log cabin here. That was his son, Edward. Some of his other children, they were teachers in Wadsworth in the uh, old one-room schoolhouses. And then Owen was his brother. And Owen lived up in Hudson. He just owned land down here, probably on speculation. And he said, hey, you can have that acre, except he is going to maintain pastoral rights to it, which means if somebody approaches him and wants to graze their sheep or cows or whatever, they could use his land to do that. He wasn't going to give up the pastoral rights. <laughs> Eventually, he ended up selling that acre officially, so he wasn't holding them, or he wasn't connected to that land whatsoever. But So initially, I don't know if there were goats or sheep or anything that grazed on it, but uh, they finally got out of that contract, and I think paid him $200 for that acre. And again, that's that acre that's along... College Street that goes to the kind of the top of the hill. I mean, just kind of visualize a football field size piece of property and that would fill that spot. And again, this is John Brown, the abolitionist. And I know that, um, gosh, I think it was Frederick that uh, went and visited John before he got executed. Um, and I know he wrote letters to him while, while he was imprisoned. So that's our connection there. Uh, Frederick did. Yeah. Yeah, he brought the books back and started his library out of his house. His wife kind of checked them out and checked them in. And she was also the local doctor. <laughs> I mean, there was no doctor around, but she had different remedies and things like that. So if they got sick, people would come check with Dr. Chloe. And, uh, she would dish out some of her different combinations of roots and berries. Okay, then, um, yeah, everything um, kind of went Wadsworth's way. You know, we were slow in developing because you got to remember the War of 1812 started in 1812, and it really didn't officially end until 1816, I believe. Uh, it was kind of calmed down. The Battle of Lake Erie took place in 1813. 
So until the Battle of Lake Erie, it was still shaky whether the English were going to run this part of the country and w along with the Native Americans. But the, the Battle of Lake Erie kind of consummated the deal that uh, looks like that was the biggest victory. So that's why people came out in 1814. They felt comfortable that they could come out here. But yeah, the official signing of the end of that war wasn't until 1815. So um, it goes on about um, uh, pages four and five, the first settlers, the make out of things. You know, there, there's a lot of names that were common that came here from German descent was the Waltz families, the Razor families, uh, the Everhards, the Schmitz or the Smith families. That's on page six, kind of lists those Pennsylvania Dutch people. And it kind of talks about how they stopped in and bought their land and some of them worked the land of uh, General Wadsworth in exchange for um, some of the cost. And so it talks about the two major elements on six and seven. Again, it was the English, the Pennsylvania Dutch and the English, the Yankees, they called them. Uh, then on page eight, it's kind of a interesting story about we started from Torrington down at the bottom. So this was the Hinsdale family and they started from Torrington, Connecticut. And there were actually two ways that people came from the East Coast, either the North Path or the South Path. The North Path took them up through like Buffalo, New York, and along Lake Erie and then straight down from there. And the ones from like Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Dutch, most of them came the Southern Path that went through Pittsburgh area and then worked up that way. And uh, I don't know, it appeared to me as if the time element was about the same, whichever route that they took, whether it was the northern route or the southern route. Some of the ones took the northern route in the wintertime because they were hoping the lake was frozen over so that they could just kind of skirt across the, the lake's edge. Well, in some cases, I think, I think it was this one, yeah. Yeah, I think it's the Hinsdales that uh, they were crossing that lake and the, <laughs> the uh, ice collapsed. And it was all they could do was to save what they had in their wagons as well as the horses um, to get out of that mess. And, you know, in these trails, you know, obviously that was the nice, nicest place to go along the edge like that. Because if you went the south route, it was all mountainous and, you know, the stubs from trees, were st the stumps were still stuck up in the air. And again, it had to be a very slow movement. And ironically, most of them didn't ride inside the wagons. It was just way too rough to sit in there and be jostled around. So most of them just walked alongside the wagons as they came out this way. But you know, and that, that's always the thing that kind of blows my mind is how much motivation do you have to have to do what you're doing? Their wagons, what I figured out is um, their cargo load is about as much as you could put in the back of a pickup truck, an eight, a four by eight bed of a pickup truck and about that high. So everything that you want to bring with you has to fit in there unless you're 
tying it onto a horse or a cow or whatever. So you have to make the decision. What do we, what are the bare necessities that we have to take? So ladies, as far as shoes, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to have to be limited to like two pair because, you know, you got all the stuff. And that's the one thing that I would do at the elementary schools, ask, especially the older kids, what are things you have to have? You know, you can't take everything. You know, as far as you as kids, you probably only have one other change of clothes that you could bring along with you because everything takes up space. And the more you add, and then you have those things that you have to have. And it gets a good discussion, you know, because I said, what are they going to do once they get here? Well, they got to build a cabin. Okay. Where are they going to get the wood? Well, they're going to chop down the trees. What do you need to chop down trees? So again, you start adding in axes and cooking utensils and quilts or things. I mean, you don't have room for couches. You don't have room for chairs. You don't have, those are just extra. Those are things you can make once you get here, but you have to take the tools to make them. So again, it, it gets into a good um, analysis. But the Hinsdales ended up, uh, they originally settled in Norton just across uh, the Norton line, uh, 261 Akron Road, and then they moved into Wadsworth onto Rymer Road. So they eventually were up there about where Weatherstone is today. But here's his story about their trip coming out and what they ran into. Stony Ridge Road that they reference on here, that is Rymer Road. So they call it Stony Ridge because if you go out Rymer Road or go up to the intersection up there, turn left, headed towards River Sticks, you'll see the rock cut that you go through the mountain or the little hill. And that's why they called it the Stony Ridge. And that wasn't cut through until the 1930s. Otherwise, it went around that uh, area. Okay, let's see what the uh, next one, the um, next page I'm going to is, and here we can skip a, a bit of time. Um, you know, again, it references uh, Albert Hinsdale. So old man, the, the oldest in the family, the one that actually brought the first family, his name was Elisha Hinsdale, and he made uh, cloverleaf axes, they called them. And so it's an axe with two heads on it, one on this side and one on that. So it's kind of in a cloverleaf shape. And he was famous for making those and made a living off of it. When he died, he actually was buried in the Western Star Cemetery. And, uh, but then the family then moved into Wadsworth or Wadsworth Township. And they had him resurrected and brought to the Woodlawn Cemetery. So the Hinsdales are buried there, at least the ones that were here when they died, uh, in the old part of the cemetery on the west side of the sidewalk. They, um, they were a very prosperous family, and uh, Albert was one of uh, Elisha's sons who stayed around, but his kids uh, became very well educated, starting out in the one-room schoolhouse, which is, still stands out there. It's a brick one, and it's kind of across uh, from that church out there, the key to your father or something church. I don't know what they call it today. If you're... Is that what they still call it? Because <laughs> it's changed named a few times. Anyway, directly across from it, there's an old one-room schoolhouse. It's a brick one. It's kind of hidden by the evergreens, but it's close to the road. 
Mafia ever drive through there. So the Hinsdales lived kind of where that church was and educated that one-room schoolhouse. Well, one of them became a doctor, a medical doctor. One of them became a professor at uh, uh, that university up north. What do they call it? Michigan. But, I mean, for back in those days, I mean, that's tremendous. And then their one son, he was more of a hands-on builder, architect. He's the one that designed the St. Mark's Church and the Disciple Church, which is the first Christian church. He designed both of them. He helped build both of them uh, in their original form in 1842. And ironically, or sadly, his was the first funeral in the Disciple Church or the first Christian church. 28 years old. Not, uh, I went back trying to search to see what got him, and I, I don't know. I mean, there were so many diseases and things going on back then. But... Um, so anyway, he had a pretty, uh, and his one daughter uh, taught, taught at one of the one-room schoolhouses up at that end. Could have been the one across the road from them. So uh, listed here on pages 10 through 12, uh, names of the first pioneers coming out. So that represents the first 21 year. Oh no, goes on, actually goes on to uh, page 13. The first 20 years of the names of all the people who came in. By the way, those are in alphabetical order according to year. So if you're looking up somebody, you don't have to scurry around reading each and every name. Just look at their last name and again, they're listed that way. Um, so 1814, the Deans and the Durhams and their children, if they had some, and then shortly after they settled, then the Germans started coming in, the Everhards, the Schmitz, and again, they headed uh, south. And then interesting enough, 1816. Does anybody know why that year is special in, I guess, United States history? You probably don't, and I need to keep pushing forward here. Uh, 1816 was known as the year without a summer. So there was an eruption over somewhere in Europe or uh, Asia, maybe it was Asia, and it blanketed the sky with ash and it drifted everywhere. So every month during that year, 1816, there was a freeze. So here, here you got these people that are desperately trying to grow some crops and plant, you know, apple trees, things like that. And every month it froze and it killed, you know, the the buds and the blooms of it. You had a couple of things. Out on the East Coast, they thought it was some kind of curse, so they headed out away from the, the uh, East Coast only to find out it happened everywhere. Or the other thing, the people who came out here were getting frustrated that they were haunted that maybe the devil was getting back at them, so they headed back to the coast. But whatever the event, in 1816, you can Google it and see what happened. There was a family came in 1817 with the last name of Richards, and they settled there at Western Star, and at one time, Western Star was known as Richards Corners. But then there was a Star family ended up living there, S-T-A-R-R, -R, and so then the town got named after them. And let's see, oh, in 1822, 
1823. That's when the Beach family came here. So you know there's a beach road up at the north end. So there was Abel and Roxy Beach. In 1823, they came here with their daughter Sylvia because their sons were already out here in 1822, George and Orlando. And their daughter, when she was uh, just a little child, she got scarlet fever really bad. So unfortunately for her, she was both deaf and she couldn't speak. And uh, so they had to keep an eye keep an eye on her because there were a lot of dangerous animals here in Wadsworth at the time. And, uh, and of course, they can't shout at her to, hey, be careful there, there's something coming. And she would also um, have uh, like epileptic fits as a result of this. So sometimes she would just kind of go a little bit nutso and take off running just arbitrarily until they chased her down and caught her and let her go through whatever that, uh, whatever she was going through. And so her name was Sylvia. And so she was Sylvia Beach. And all the third grades, graders learn about Sylvia Beach in their little history book that they read. And it's a fascinating story. But uh, so she's 22, 23 years old. And so they settled out here on the Hain Farm, which is out here on Akron Road. Uh, you get off High Street and you head down Akron Road. You go down the hill on the left. That big farm's still there. That's the Hain Farm. So they lived in a log cabin right there, pretty much where the, house, um, the Haines live. And uh, so they had started their cabin. They had just gotten here. They cut down the trees, all the branches around their, their cabin. And Sylvia and Mom were collecting wood one day for the fireplace, and they're outside. And Mom heads into the cabin with a load of wood, and Sylvia's behind her. And the door slams behind Mom. She lays down the wood. She turns around. No Sylvia. And so she you know, goes to the door and opens it up and looks for Sylvia. Sylvia's not there. And so now Mom is looking around the cabin. Sylvia can't be found. No Sylvia anywhere. So by now, Mom shouts out to the boys and her husband out in the barn saying, come in here or come back to the house or the cabin. I can't find Sylvia. And of course, they can't call for her because she's deaf. So they visually have to search her out. So they check out the cabin again. They go up in the loft. There's no Sylvia. They check around the cabin. No Sylvia. No signs of her. But they had all this brush all around the cabin. Like I say, the tops of the trees that they use the logs for the cabin. And so they start tearing through all it, trying to pull the branches out, thinking that uh, she may have crawled back in there and gotten into a fetal position, whatever she would do. And so they're going through, they're going through and pulling stuff out. Finally, the one son spots an opening in the underbrush big enough for you know, a teenager to go in. So he's crawling in there and crawling in there. Boom! All of a sudden, there it was. And what scared him, it was a rabbit that came out of the underbrush and it was no Sylvia. <laughs> so that took it to the next level. He's saying, you know, I'm not going back in there again. So then they finally sent a couple of the boys down the road to the next farm, which, you know, is another quarter to a half mile down the road 
to summon them up to see if they could go out and start searching beyond the cabin and into the, the woods, which they did, and they finally found her tracks. It had snowed a little bit. This was right about now, uh, no, the middle of March. And so there was a, a little bit of snow down on the ground and they did spot her footprints. So they started following him, and that would be in the Bent Creek area there at the bottom of the hill. And they kind of took a uh, southwesterly route. So basically, they were following the creek into Wadsworth, is what I figured, which then put them around uh, Durling Park area, because that's where that creek goes through Durling Park. And they finally had to give up the search because it was like two in the morning, it was freezing cold, and they said, you know, why, and having a hard time seeing, you know, using lanterns and things or uh, torches. So they said, let's get back here when it, at daybreak, you know, which is what, about seven, eight in the morning and that time of year? Yeah, about seven. So they all reconvened, they brought more people in to search, and they got there and they found her tracks again and they're following, they're following, they're following, probably getting around the area of Durling Park and the sun comes up. So the snow melts, her footprints leave and they found absolutely no signs of her after that. That was the only sign she ever left. There was no blood, there was no torn clothing, there was nothing you know, that those professional hunters could spot that would indicate her existence. So a week later, they finally brought all these people back together to do another search, and it, it wasn't gonna be a search and rescue, it was just gonna be a search to find her body. And they brought these people in, in all the neighboring communities. Now, granted, this is 1823, there's hardly any people that even lives in Wadsworth, and they brought them from Seville, from Doylestown, from Ripman, from Sharon Center, Copley, and they brought like 400 men and boys in, and they made a human line pretty much all across Wadsworth with uh, eh, spacing maybe about 20 yards in between everyone. And they just marched through the entire woods and found nothing. So she has a tombstone down in the Woodlawn Cemetery that simply says Sylvia, daughter of A and R Beach, lost in the woods and never found, April 17, 1824. To this day, nothing. But if you are down there at Durling Park after sunset and you see a mist coming through the valley, I'd get out of there because it says that, uh, or people have said that her uh, spirit haunts that valley and that people have heard things down there. So keep that in mind. Okay, so bouncing through here, uh, I talked a bunch about the Brown family on page 15. So the Frederick Brown, as I mentioned earlier, who established his home at the center in 1816 his sister, by the way, I think it was his sister, and I don't have a picture of her, she married uh, into the Hudson family. 
and the Hudsons were the ones that settled Hudson. Um, she and her husband, Tim, I believe it was Tim Hudson, they owned the farm down here where Sacred Heart kind of occupies the space now. And it was his dad that uh, was the deacon Hudson that started the town of Hudson. So again, all these related because that's where the Brown family was from. So the Browns and the Hudson, then they intermarried here in Wadsworth and then they left and I think they moved up to Hudson. And that, uh, I think it was Owen Brown, um, he adopted this guy called Le Levi Blakesley and Levi lived here in Wadsworth and he owned a um, tannery where the Methodist church is today, just down the street here on Broad Street, utilizing uh, Sylvia Beach's Creek, or at least what she followed. Uh, so on page 16, talks about John Brown, Owen Brown, and also, um, so Levi Blakesley, again, he was the adoptive son of um, Owen Brown, and then also who worked for Owen Brown as a, um, a tanner was Jesse Grant. And Jesse Grant was the father of Ulysses S. Grant. So a little tie into history here in Wadsworth. So I'm look, it still talks about Frederick Brown and his contributions. And again, I encourage you to go back. I'm just trying to make connections on where all this stuff is. And again, the um, Frederick Brown's house was just in this area. And if you were around a long time ago, there used to be the gas station here on this property, the Gulf gas station. And the Gulf gas station was in the location of a house that sat behind it. They moved it up the street behind it. That was called the Parmalee House. And the Parmalee House was started by the Brown family. <laughs> um, but that house has been gone, I think, since, since the 60s. Okay, and popping uh, in here some more. Um, let's see, I'm on page 18 now. Yeah, interesting enough, you know, they chopped the uh, east-west road here. They also had a north-south road, and that's what State Road is today up at the north end, you know, where you do the zigzag up there by Home Depot. So that was the road to Cleveland. This was the road, <laughs> well, just as Greenwich. And then there was the Akron Road, which was, that path was used a lot because the nearest mill to grind their grain at the beginning because there were no grist mills here at that time. So um, it was in Middlebury. Anybody heard of Middlebury over? It's part of Akron now. Before it was the growing community that was going to be the Akron, but then the Akron swamp took them over and um, it was a more desirable location, I guess, and Middle, Middlebury turned into a ghost town. And it's in the Ellet area of Akron. But it would take them a day to load, or they'd take their grain, and it took them a day to go clear out to Middlebury, have their grain ground, and then they'd stay overnight there and took a day to come home. So they were sure happy when the first grist mills went in down at the south end of Wadsworth along the creeks down there. And anyway, um, Page 19 at the bottom talks about Timothy Hudson, uh, Judge Brown's son-in-law. Oh, and Frederick Brown himself was one of the um, area judges. 
So like I say, he was an educated person in himself. Sylvia Beach story is on page 20 to 21. So you can read it, share it with your kids or your grandkids or whatever kids, your neighbor's kids. And so then uh, we get into some things that helped out Wadsworth. The Erie Canal from Akron to Cleveland and through Barberton helped out Wadsworth people so that they could sell their grain in other places because obviously everybody had a farm here. They didn't need the grain. But uh, so the opening of that, even though it's not that convenient to get to, I mean, it's. And by the way, Barberton back in those days was called New Portage. Barberton didn't exist right away. That wasn't until O.C. Barber built that town. So before that, it was called the uh, New Portage. The Old Portage was Akron. And of course, between the two, they had a portage between them that the, the uh, Native Americans had to carry their canoes from the um, Cuyahoga River down in the bend and take them to the Tuscaroras River. So that was their north-south way of getting around. So again, if you see that in books that you're reading about uh, the old portage, that's Akron, and new portage is Barberton. And then it uh, talks about some of these first, like the first Miller down at the bottom, page 22, and Luther Hemingway. He, it says it was built on uh, Diagonal Road to Medina. So Diagonal Road is there at the three-way stop on College Street, and 57 used to turn right there and go right, and then they cut that section off. But they call that Diagonal Road because you go diagonally, follow that road, and it takes you to Medina. And now with 57, so you have a stub here that goes into the hospital, then it dead ends, and then picked up by new 57. So again, this particular mill must have been on the Holmes Brook is all I can figure. I haven't, because it says it's on Diagonal Road, and that's the closest creek there is that runs parallel to it. But I've never been able to ascertain where it was located. Uh, then the Allen and John Pardee, down at the very bottom of that, page 22, they operated their gr first grist mill down in the south end of Wadsworth. So, unfortunately, in Wadsworth, <laughs> a lot of our creeks are covered up and you can't see them. You see openings every once in a while. So just like I said at Durling Park, you know, you head up towards Bent Creek. I mean, it's open, it's an open creek so far and then they bury it uh, with culvert piping. And then of course, just south of Durling Park, it goes under the streets, it goes under the playground equipment there at uh, Sacred Heart School it then opens up down by the old East Street Market or Marion's Closet or behind the Methodist Church. It opens up just for a little bit, then it closes and it all goes underneath the factories, the old factories, and it ends up emptying out in the south end. Then you have Blocker's Run that uh, runs kind of parallel to the railroad tracks down there. It's open right there by the barber shop, and then it goes under and it doesn't come out until Mill Street or uh, the end of Grandview, let's put it that way. So we had like three major creeks coming through Wadsworth and they all kind of came together down at the south end. 
where you get off of St State Street and you take that little mill road, they call it, and then it hooks into Grandview and hooks into Rainbow, kind of in that area. So all three of them converge there. And it must have been a site back in its day. I mean, there were waterfalls and things. I mean, think about it there where the injector is, and now it's all buried. You can't see, but underneath the ground, it goes, you know, flat, and then it drops down. It's layered underneath there, different drop-offs. I've talked to city workers who say they have to take a ladder in there to get down from the one end to the other end um, because of all the drop-downs. So it's tiered, in other words. But anyway, where those three creeks came together were where a lot of the mills went um, because there'd be enough water there to circulate them. So the first miller, the village smithy, Peter Waltz, he seemed to be a big name. I think he, well, he had a blacksmith shop here in town. It says, okay, he set up his first shop out by the high church out there um, on Eastern Road, um, out by the Silver Run Winery. Yeah, and I believe he is the one that um, made the one rifle that we have over in the museum. So he made rifles, being a blacksmith, I guess that's what they do too. So that's on display over at the museum. And uh, so the village smithy, you have stone cutters. We had uh, several quarries in Wadsworth. One of them would be, if you ever went up Summit Street off of Broad Street, you notice the back of those houses have kind of a steep cliff to them. You probably never noticed, but now you will. But they don't have much of a backyard because um, they just have the, the steep wall behind them gone up to Baird. Well, that's because they cut out um, the sandstone there and quarried it. So they left the, the face of it, but it's all covered up with houses. So that was one of the quarries in town. Another one it was on High Street once you pass the, uh, oh, the light that goes down to Valley View School, stay on High Street head north and like Baker Street and all those, you can see that it's kind of a cliffy looking thing if you really look at it. So that was a sto stone quarry too. So the stones of course were cut and hauled and well like places like the, the museum, its whole basement is made of those stone, those cut sandstone. And uh, barns of course were made of those yeah, it's, it's, again, it's amazing, too, uh, how many resources we had in Wadsworth. So you had the sandstone that you cut. They had whetstone, W-H-E-T stone, and that's used to sharpen knives and uh, different dentist equipment, drills, that sort of thing. That was out, I think, around the Hain Farm. They had whetstone. And then, of course, we had the coal. We had salt. We had wood, which was important at the beginning. So a lot of resources fell into Wadsworth Air, came naturally that uh, helped keep the economy going. Oh, another thing that I'm going to bring up about here, the city of Wadsworth. Usually uh, a city like this ends up being in the middle of the township. And the middle of Wadsworth Township is where Isham School is located, about a half mile down the road to the west of here. So 
poor Mrs. Shapiro, I don't think she could figure out what happened there. And I just learned it a couple of years ago. So a couple of the original surveyors that came in, uh, probably for the land companies that bought up this land, I think they went with a cheapy, cheapy person, you know, that uh, they're going to do this for the best price ever. And they missed it by a half mile. They had Wadsworth Township going across 585 and up the hill in Doylestown about a quarter of a mile. And then when it finally, so it shifted everything this way. So I think they established this as being the center of the township, which at the time, that's what the first survey said. Well, they didn't wait for the second survey because they were a half mile shifted to the east. So they shifted it back, which then, now the center of the township is Isham School as opposed to the location here. So that was a guy that came to one of the meetings. In fact, he did a presentation because he, he's a surveyor and he, he's all into the history and he's the one that told that story and it all makes sense now. Back then, poor Shapiro couldn't figure out and then all these theories saying, well, yeah, they shifted because it was too hilly down there. Well, this is all hills. Uh, the whole downtown Wadsworth area is hills. Why would that hill be any different from this hill? But that's what it was. It was just a mistake done in the original survey. And when it got corrected, uh, they didn't move anything. Okay, now the bottom of page 25 talks about uh, our most famous person that was here in Wadsworth. And that was... Laura Spellman, uh, Laura Celeste Spellman, who was born in downtown Wadsworth. Her dad, Mr. Spellman, um, built a house and a store together. I mean, when the downtown developed, you know, once they got rid of the log cabins, they replaced them with a regular clabbered house, probably looking like a Western Reserve house, just all white and rectangular. Uh, but since they built it close to the center of Wadsworth, they put a storefront, a general store, so they could sell supplies out of it. Before that, there was only, I think, one other, and it was down here where the old bank was, just down here on the corner. And uh, that was run by the Pardee family. So Mr. Spellman opened a store here. He had one in uh, River Sticks, and then he eventually had one in Akron, he had one in Kent. But he was only here a month after Laura was born, and he moved the family to Kent, where they opened up another. It was almost like he had a string of stores, uh, miniature grocery stores. But anyway, uh, she was a month old when she got moved. From there, they went to Kent. From there, they moved to Cleveland. From there, she went to Central High School in Cleveland. And from there, she met a schoolmate that she fell in love with. And there she married him, and he became the richest man in the world, John D. Rockefeller. All happened here, started here in Wadsworth. Uh, not sure what happened to the house. I'm still trying to search it out because, you know, if it burned down, it burned down. But back in those old days, back in the 1830s, 40s, whatever, you just didn't tear down a house. You recycled the house whether you tore it apart piece by piece and rebuild it someplace else, or you moved it. A lot of houses in Wadsworth didn't start out where they are today. They started maybe a quarter of a mile down the road, and people said, oh, we're going to move. Okay, but back then they moved their whole house with them. 
And so they'd find a lot and build a basement and move the house for whatever reason. And it's usually because in this case, the Spellman house, it's because they wanted to build those buildings over there where the, the Legion is and they're on Main Street. And a guy wanted to build a print shop there. And so he um, purchased some of those houses or sold them. Well, he had to do both, I guess. Uh, and the one house that was removed from there is up here at the corner of Boyer and High Street. It's where the Erie Insurance Company is now. Like right across the street to the north of them is First Christian Church. So they're right there at that corner. It's where the Durhammer photography used to be. So that house used to be where the American Legion sits today. So they rolled it up there on telephone poles with horses and mules pulling it and put it on new foundation. And uh, so I'm sure you got the house cheap, but that was expensive moving it. And in the back of my mind, and I'm still trying to do the research on, I just wonder if that house could have been the Spellman house. All they say in the descriptor here is she was born in a house north of Central School. Well, and back then, that doesn't mean it was right next door. And uh, back in that day, the predecessor to the school over there was built in 1870. So um, they built that uh, Legion in 1874, I believe. But anyway, um, it just goes to show how things change. And who knows, if I ever discovered that that house was the Spellman house, we could be a tourist attraction. Because <laughs> I'm sure we'd get money from the Rockefellers to do something with it. Okay, I threw some pictures together up here of during the 1830s, the 1840s. These are the buildings um, that, that are still, some of them are still standing, some of them are not. So up here in the upper left-hand corner, that is St. Mark's Church in its original form. It was the uh, Congregationalist Church. This was... Uh, no, this was the Methodist church that used to be over here where Central School is in the parking lot along Main Street in front of O.J. Work Auditorium. This was the church that sat there. Well, actually, that one was torn down. Then they replaced it with brick. And then it got torn down. But before they tore it down, it was the annex building. If you went to Central School, then it was the old annex. But this was the wood structure. Then the annex was made out of brick. And when they tore it down, of course, they found the stained glass windows in there, which they promptly gave it back to the Methodist Church. And the Methodist Church, by the way, was on the E.J. Young property that they hauled down his mansion to build that. But I think in the meantime, it was let go uh, as far as it's, and it got into a pretty bad condition. Kind of like the O.C. Barber uh, mansion over in Barberton. Nobody keeps them up and they eventually cave in. So again, the Methodist Church was down here. This, of course, just got hauled down for the new CIS. This was built about 1838, and it was made of handmade brick that they made on the property, dug out the clay on the farm, and I don't know whether they kiln-dried it, if they had their own setup, or whether they just air-dried it. I'm thinking just air-dry. This is... Pardon? Who owned that 
Well, it was in the family since its building. It, it was built, like I say, 1838. It was the Jacob Miller farm. And he would have been, I think he got to Wadsworth, uh, I don't know, eight, late eight, 1820s, early 1830s. He would have built a log cabin originally till he built this more permanent structure. And then his relatives owned it and owned it and owned it. So the last relatives were the Schaefer family. So they were related to Jacob Miller. But again, they were all <laughs> intermarried and that sort of thing. At one time, um, a cyberling lived there, but she had married into the Harder family and the Harder family lived there. And again, they were all relatives you know, throughout the history. So anyway, unfortunately, it was in such disrepair. I did get to visit it before it uh, found its ultimate demise. It, it was horrible. It was, in fact, most of the rooms were cordoned off that you couldn't get into it because windowsills were caved in, headers were falling down, plaster everywhere. It just got let go and beyond repair. This is the uh, uh, Graham Kelly or Kelly Graham uh, insurance company just across the street here. This was the old stone store that was down here where the bank, the old bank used to be the Citizens Bank here at the intersection. This was the Disciple Church or the First Christian Church. Not much left of the original. Uh, everything else has been built around it. But I think, you know, the original building is still in there, but it's you can see back there, it had a porch in the front. Now it's all built up. And this would have been one of the grist mills or mills in general down in the south end of Wadsworth. So I just wanted to show some pictures that I had from that time period. And this is Laura Celestia Spellman, Rockefeller, and J.D. So again, their claim to fame or her claim to fame is she was from Wadsworth, Ohio. Look it up in Wikipedia. <laughs> so some of her family still stayed in Wadsworth. Sometimes Spellman has two L's in it. And then you had the Mennonites that came into town, the Germans, um, and they made a big contribution here. I'm trying to think of the way some of this stuff blends in. So the Methodist Church is on page 31. Uh, I talked about Jacob Miller's property where CIS will be built. The Congregational Church is on 32. That again is the St. Mark's Church downtown, which even St. Mark's doesn't exist today. Um, so they have folded. Uh, Congregationalists were kind of like the Presbyterian and some people get confused because some people called it the Presbyterian. There must be a fine line between those two religions. Right. Well, if you put all these churches on continuums, you know, there's a fine line between each one until you get from one end to the other. And then there's a little bit thicker line. So a lot of this, you know, they talk about the charter members and things like that. Um, but with this book, not having an index, when you go to search for it, that's what the pain in the behind is. Because if you want to read about the history of that church, you have to look up Congregationalists, but there's nothing in the index that says that. Then also, then you'd have to go to the next period of time in this book because the Mennonites took over that church. 
um, when they outgrew and here's their original church and this was out there on diagonal road or the road going to the cemetery from the three-way stop nothing's left there because obviously it's a wooden structure except the cemetery in the background is still there so this picture is kind of a blurry one but uh, but the tombstones are right back here which means this was up by the road if you're gone the old way into the hospital off of uh, Diagonal Road or whatever you want to call it um, you'll see the cemetery there and Efren Huntsberger he actually at one time owned that house that's uh, at the end of West Street and College Street the kind of historical looking one yeah the gingerbready one and in fact I see Marla's here and she helped us put this book together because she took these pictures a long time ago. Uh-oh, that means I, I need to stop. Um, but in here, that one was included and he did live there at one time. He lived down the street from it at one time. By the way, these books, and we don't have many left, these books are on sale over at the museum. I forgot we had a few left over. Uh, I believe they're $10 each, but they're the historic homes of Wadsworth. If you've never seen it, it's, uh, and again, Marla, Marla, raise your hand. Stand up on the table, though, so they can see it. <laughs> but she did a nice job uh, with these, um, putting these old uh, historic homes together into, yeah, that's the one. So where West Street enters college. And these were what they considered the, the modern Mennonites. They're not the conservative ones, even though, you know, they look, well, going back in time, as opposed to the Mennonites like out on Mennonite Hill that are still very conservative. They drive the black cars. They wear the dark blues and the blacks. And I'm going to finish up here. I can catch these up because we were 15 minutes into this uh, kind of delay. Um, I can pop through these. But I do want your input here. Uh, this school, by the way, was one of the first schools towards the center of town, and it was located behind St. Mark's Church of today, the one on the left. And then when there were so many kids that they outgrew the uh, one-room schoolhouse, and again, they only went to school to sixth grade, uh, just like Amish do today, and then they were on their own. But as the population grew, they outgrew this, and so they made a double-wide school, and they called it... Uh, the Long Schoolhouse, and it still exists today. It's on North Party, so if you go to St. Mark's and turn right, it's at 166 <laughs> on the west side, 166 and 168, I think. Who is it? Who's there? Or? She lives next to it. Okay, so if we go to a party at her house, we're going to go next door and just kind of gawk at it. <laughs> so they called it the Long House because it was wide, and so they called it Long because it was longer than normal. Not that Long's taught their, uh, their property. But when they built that originally, it was across from the First Christian Church in the Save-A-Lot parking lot. Then Save-A-Lot came along and they wanted it out. No, it got moved a long time ago. Another example of how they moved a building so they got it out of there and moved it down the street.
but little kids, uh, probably the equivalents to grades one through three were in one section, and then the older kids were in the other section, split in half, and now it's two houses, or it's a duplex, where somebody lives in the little kids section, somebody lives in the older kids section. And it's white, yeah. It's probably a quarter of a mile once you get on to a north party off of college. But going back to this school, and she mentions it in the book, that supposedly, although you know we have to take her word for it at the time, now she was an educator as well as a historian, supposedly Joseph Smith came and gave a speech in that schoolhouse in the evening after hours, recruiting uh, people to join the Mormon movement. Because as you know, this all started up in Kirtland up north of here. And so he came down and recruited people to become part of the Mormon faith. But as you know, if you know much about how that started, you had to sell all your worldly belongings and to go up to Kirtland and work on kind of the, in the commune. I mean, it's an interesting story, but of course it, it doesn't get into detail here. But it sounded like there were several farmers around here that sold their land, and it was usually the party family, which we'll talk about later, because they were lawyers and judges and things, and they scooped up these properties and resold them and made tons of money off these people. And then they had to take the money that they had and go up to the commune and give it to the Mormons. I'm going to say it because I don't know how else to say it. And then they worked on, in the communal gardens. And then after a while, it seems like they started figuring out that things aren't working out right here, <laughs> that they don't own anything, that maybe they're not being taken care of as best, and that somebody else. But then that's when they turned on him and chased him out west. You'll have to read it yourself. But it is an interesting place to visit up there in Kirtland just to see that church, that big stone, sandstone church. Anyway, okay, so I am going to stop here, hopefully. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and would like to thank you for listening. You can contact us or find more information on this topic, as well as many other resources, at wadsworthlibrary.com.